Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. Today we're going to cover a topic for Thanksgiving. We're going to be taking a look at answering the question, Whom shall we thank? Whom shall we thank? And it's an opportunity for us at the holidays to to bring up the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, because indeed we're on the topic of Thanksgiving. And I want to begin uh, just with a little review to put things in perspective in the uh, place we're in and the history of this holiday in our nation. I'm not going to give you a dissertation. You can find out much more from better experts than me on the subject, but I want to point out a trend. Our tradition goes all the way back to 1621, where the uh, pilgrims that had landed at Plymouth, at a place they ended up calling Plymouth, their first winter had lost about 50% of their number. Uh, they had a very difficult time. They arrived late, later than they expected and did not get shelters built as they should have and everything. But they were people of God. They were Christian people. And as such, they saw fit at the end of their first full year there, having successful harvest, having had help delivered by Squanto and other Native Americans that were there to help them, and, and having a, a great deal of success in, in forging their way in a new land in the first year, despite their losses, they took time after the fall harvest to give thanks. And that's where our tradition started. And it was celebrated intermittently by people over the next couple of centuries. But then uh, Abraham Lincoln formalized it, finding that a lot of people were celebrating it. He decided to make it a federal holiday in 1863, a time, as he said, to pause and celebrate the goodness of God. Later, it was signed into federal law um, by Grant. And then in 1942, Congress passed a, a place fixing the date, and that, of course, was signed into law by Roosevelt. In every instance, I want to point out this, that the overwhelming assumption in all of those instances is that they were thanking God, and not just any God, but the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, and then of the Christians of every nation, whether it was 1863 1870 or 1942. In every case, it was a reference to what happened in 1621 in which Christians sought to thank, thank the Trinitarian God of the Bible for every benefit they had, had, had received. And it's interesting that every time that this holiday was revisited, every time that this holiday received formal recognition by our nation at the federal level was a time of intense struggle. In 1621, before this even was a nation here, their intense struggle was, of course, that hard winter in which only half of them survived. In 1863, when Lincoln acted, it was in the midst of a bloody civil war here in this nation. In 1870, it was soon after that same civil war and after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln that President Grant uh, moved to get this done and signed it into law. And then in 1942, in the midst of World War II, having worn ourselves out with World War I, having endured the Great Depression, and now having been embroiled in another world war, suddenly everybody wanted to stop and give thanks. 
And it's interesting now that we're some 70 or, or 80 years past this last formal federal recognition of the day, we find ourselves in a predominantly secular age. That is an age of people living without reference to God. Interestingly, we still have the tradition though, but we don't have the substance of thanksgiving. And as this often happens in times of prosperity, we become complacent. We begin to believe that what we have, we have wrought with our own hands. It's the work of our own hands. It's the own results of our own efforts that we've put forward. We begin to look then to mankind for what we need rather than to God. And it's a part of our brokenness and sin that in times of plenty and ease, we have a tendency to forget about God. In times of peace and prosperity, we tend to fall away from God. But God in his goodness, ready for this? God in his goodness sends difficulty upon us occasionally. And it is in those times in which we understand our frail position as human beings on this earth, and we understand the coming uh, specter of death in each and every one of our lives, that we turn to him in thanks and gratitude. That as things begin to get taken away, we begin to understand what is truly important. And this is an important time in 2020 as we find ourselves in humbling circumstances once again. We have a a, uh, nation that is harshly politically divided. We have come through or are coming through and currently having another great spike in this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, We indeed have suffered through great difficulty, the economic difficulties that come along with the pandemic. And the question is, what will we do? Will we turn to God again? Will we thank God? Will we find the presence of mind to realize what is really important at this time as we seem to be on the brink of losing so much? For this reason, I've chosen a passage that reveals the spiritual truth behind the importance of giving thanks. And this passage also reveals the great danger in ignoring this great duty that we have of giving thanks, and indeed the great privilege that we have of giving thanks to God. And that will be in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, I want to read to you verses 18 through 21, and then we'll eventually kind of paraphrase the rest of the chapter. But let's take a look at this first. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, it says this, Paul says, and he's introducing his gospel here, this is the the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, let's begin so that we may understand these things with a word of prayer. 
Father God, it's upon you this day to enlighten us to these things, for these are spiritual truths. They're not understood by the wisdom of man. We need you to lend to us the wisdom of God, that we may understand these things, and we may see your great and robust and beautiful and freeing truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these may come as shocking verses here, and the role of thanksgiving in them is such that thanks the thanksgiving becomes a sign of what's gone wrong. And what follows verse 21 is a list of sins. We'll kind of go through these very quickly, but what happens is there's a trend. It begins in verse 21 with a failure to honor God or give thanks to Him. But then what happens is people become futile in their thinking. In other words, their thinking no longer accomplishes anything worthwhile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, That means an absence of light. They're, they're turning away from the light because they're not honoring or thanking God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, the Bible defines fools a little differently than we do in our modern society. The Bible defines fools as those who say in their heart, there is no God. And that's a a quote from the Proverbs there, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And isn't it interesting that it's phrased that way in the Proverbs? Because it suggests that the fool is not merely have, have an absence of the thoughts of God in his heart, but he has an active thought in his heart that there is no God. In other words, there is a denial. And the Bible continually bears witness to this, that mankind's problem with God is that not that they don't know God, but that they refuse to know God. Something shocking we see here. And look how this trend continues. Once they become fools, they exchange the glorious God for the the images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. In other words, idolatry. And after this idolatry, which includes the worship of people over the worship of God, which is rampant in our society today, as we worship political figures, we hang on their every word. People were weeping when the uh, uh, when victory was claimed by one of the the presidential candidates this year. You know, this is idolatry. These are people so hung up because they have no God but mankind himself. It's a very sad state of affairs to be in when we put our well-being into the hands of man, knowing what we ourselves are like. And so this is uh, idolatry, and this then God gives them over to their own lusts of their hearts, to their own desires, to impurity. And that leads to even more and more sin. And then finally, after more sin, God gives them up to what he calls dishonorable passions. And things, uh, things are done with the human body that God did not intend it for. And it becomes a great defiling thing. And then he says here, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And so this is a, a profound thing, a, a debased mind. This is literally people that cannot think straight, people that, that cannot think in accord with reality. But what I want to draw your attention to is I don't want to focus in on this whole list of sins or everything. I simply want to point out where it all began in verse 21. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. 
This all began with neglecting the duty to honor God for his position, for who he is, and to give him thanks. And these two things are closely related. In order to honor God for who he is, that automatically leads to thanksgiving. And if you were to thank God for anything, you're automatically acknowledging who he is and the position that he holds over creation. And so to fail in these most basic things of honoring and giving thanks is to be on the edge of a precipice. To neglect these is to fall over the cliff and tumble down across all these uh, continuing and and more and more uh, terrible things that are spoken of in this chapter. Now, to really begin to apply this, let's look at back up a little bit and look at some very basics of what it is that the Bible says about thanksgiving. Now, first of all, giving thanks is clearly commanded by God's word. And we're thinking in terms of things like Psalm 50, verse 14, which says, uh, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. First Thessalonians in the New Testament 5.18, Paul tells us, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And he tells his young uh, uh, the pastor that he's mentoring, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2.1, he says, uh, first of all, then he begins to speak about prayer, the work of the ministry being prayer. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Uh, Some are easier to thank for than others. And this reminds me of a, a quote by Jeremy Taylor, where he says, every furrow in the book of Psalms is sown with the seeds of thanksgiving. In the Bible, it is inescapable, this property of God's people in which they are thankful. They come to him in gratitude. And it is because they've received mercy and grace from God that they come to him with this thankful heart and thankful for indeed for all things at all times. Uh, It is also modeled by Jesus and the apostles. Uh, Jesus, we find Jesus giving thanks uh, continually. He gives thanks um, and instructs us to do so. We find him praying out loud sometimes. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And we find him at the grave of Lazarus as he's about to raise him from the dead. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. Thanks God for hearing his prayer. It is modeled by the Apostle Paul in the opening of virtually every letter that he's written in the New Testament. Paul gives thanks for the people that he's writing to. And he also uh, gives thanks to them constantly, he says, mentioning in the prayers. And he says, we give thanks. And he's speaking of being with other people that are giving thanks for the believers that he writes to. So it's not only commanded, it's modeled by Jesus and the apostles. It's modeled by the early church. And as you examine church history, prayer and thanksgiving are those things that go hand in hand as very, very basic to the Christian life. Ambrose says this about Thanksgiving, he says, no duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. 
But this is also the most basic and sincere form of worship that we have. It begins right here, like like the quote says from Jeremy Taylor, every furrow in the book of Psalms is sown with the seeds of thanksgiving. Listen to what it says in the book of Psalms about thanksgiving. It says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. In other words, this is what's pleasing to God. And we'll get to that more in a moment. Psalm 107:22. let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Speak, speaking of the people of God here, let them offer sacrifice of thanksgiving. Send them in there. And it says, tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Indeed, we have so much to talk about when we just talk about what God has done for everyone, especially for his people. And in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, uh, it says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So there it is. The praise is tied together with honoring him for who he is. But there's one Psalm I want to look look at here, and I want to show you what it says here. It is essential Uh, to the Christian life as it's a key component of asking and receiving. Look what it says in Psalm 50, starting at verse 7 here. It says this, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So this is coming forth as a rebuke initially to uh, Israel. And it says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So what this is speaking of is this is speaking of people that are doing their religious duties. Okay. They're showing up for church. They're doing what they ought to do, behaving the way they ought to behave. But the Lord says, "Ah, that's not what I'm real interested in. Those are good. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. In other words, what God is saying is, you know, he, of course, these are sacrifices. He commanded the Israelites to make. He told them to do these things. It was their worship plan. And God says, you know, it's not those that I'm real interested in. I don't need them for food. I'm not really in need of those things. They're all mine anyway. He says, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. See, Thanksgiving is part of the cycle in which we call upon God for things. As his people, we ask him for things. And we ask, and then we receive. And as we receive, then it increases our faith because we're like, hey, look, God gave me the thing that I asked for. And so obviously he's real. And I'm reminded even more and more that he's real. I'm more convinced that he's real. And he has provided what he asked. So I'm going to ask him something else. Well, part of that cycle is thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is little more than the recognition that the thing came from God. So when we pray for something and we receive it, thanksgiving is critical to completing that cycle 
of then returning praise and honor and glory due to him for having provided it and then having the faith to step out and ask again because we know from whom it comes. So this is basic to real Christian life, basic to our worship. It's also the foundation of every virtue. The fruit of the Spirit, if you think about what those are in Galatians 5.22, they are all canceled out by pride. They're only profitable when the source is properly acknowledged. In fact, I want to go there and take a look at those. If you know, I hadn't planned on it, I can zip there really fast. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you insert pride into any of those things, or if you insert those things, you know, yourself into those things and say, I'm the one that's loving, I'm the one that's joyful, I'm the one that's brought peace and patience and kindness and all these things, you really cancel out the idea of this being the fruit of the Spirit. Without thankfulness, these aren't credited properly as the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that God gives. Here's what John Henry Jowett said of this. He said, every virtue divorced from thankfulness is maimed and limps along the spiritual road. Isn't that interesting? Every virtue divorced from thankfulness is maimed and limps along the spiritual road. Well, failing to give thanks is just as bad, um, is, is very, very bad It is as bad as giving thanks is good. As much as giving thanks is commanded and giving thanks is modeled in the Bible and giving thanks is our very basic uh, spiritual worship that we can do, failing to give thanks is a great problem in the Christian life, a great sin, if you will. In order to really understand what happens in failing to give thanks, read Romans chapter 1 again. This is the basic problem of humanity, to try to live without reference to God, to live as we think we are free agents. Now, we are moral agents in that we make moral choices and we are accountable for those moral choices, but we're not designed to be living without God. And in that sense, then, uh, we are not free to simply go about our day and we are not free to actually assume that what we have has been produced by our hands. We must give thanks. And if we look at the passage that we took a look at here, uh, it is the very beginning of sin. Now point that out once again in verse 21. Um, Everything that can be known about God is apparently, according to this, visible in all of creation. First of all, the fact that there is anything should cause us to realize that there is a first cause. And the Bible tells us that first cause is God. And no, the Big Bang Theory doesn't help because you're like, what went bang? What caused it to go bang? What was there before the Big Bang? Now people say, aha, the same problem's true of you. What was before God? And we say, well, that's not a question. It applies to God because he's an eternal being. That doesn't mean he's very old. That means he exists beyond time, outside of time, extra-dimensional to time. He, in fact, created time. We live in time. We experience time. We're fixed in a timeline, but he is not. He sees the beginning and the middle and the end all the same. So to ask what was before him is not a sensible question. It is a question that can only be answered of anything that is part of this material universe. 
To ask before of God assumes he's less than God. And so the fact that there's anything suggests that there's a God, but not only that, but what the anything is, the very nature of the universe shows us what he is like. And that's what this passage is saying. Now, our eyes are closed to it because as it says there in the previous verse, it says here, um, his invisible attributes and divine nature. But look at this in verse 18, it says, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. In other words, what can be known about God is being seen, but we don't want to see it. (laughs) In our own unrighteousness, our own sinfulness, we like, "Ah, I don't want to see that. Get that away from me. Back it off. Uh, Just like a a cockroach scrambles for cover when the lights come on. Uh, The average human being uh, without the call of God will scatter and hide every time. That's what this is speaking of. And it's speaking of this denial and this downward spiral of sin begins here, failing to honor or to give thanks. Well, when we do that, it leads to idolatry because here's the thing. We were made for worship. We were made to worship God, to exist with God. And without him, it's like one of those new laptops you can get that needs the internet um, in order to function properly. Like they're almost useless without the internet. And more and more laptops are kind of getting that way, which by the way is very tedious to someone living out in the country like I do. But We are like that in that we were made to exist with God. So separated from him, we are a dysfunction. We are a walking dysfunction. And what happens is when we reject him and turn away from the revelation of his truth that is in all creation, we begin to give ourselves over to idolatry. In other words, we, that worshiping function inside of us needs an outlet. And so it will find something and it will put it there and we will worship something. In other words, we will worship people. We will worship ourselves. We will worship our own lusts and fulfill those in various kinds of ways. And that's what's being described in this passage is once we turn from honoring God and thanking God, then we're given over to all sorts of things that are going to take God's place in our life. And anything that takes God's place in our life is an idol. Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Still applies today. Even if we don't have a little carved image and and it's got a name and we call it Joe, this is my God, Joe, and I'm going to put him back here on my shelf and I'm going to bow down to him and worship him and Joe's going to bless me. No, even though we don't have that, we have idols nonetheless. And sometimes our idols are even good things like our children. Sometimes our idols are careers and success. Sometimes our idols are political progress. And so all of these things become our idols and they take the place of what should be God in the world. Now, all those things are good and should be pursued and responsibilities should be embraced, but only in reference to their place second to God. So this leads to idolatry and it leads to futility. In other words, our efforts then are not fulfilling us. 
no matter how great a career we have, no matter how great we treat our kids or raise our family or dedicate ourselves to charity or to anything else, without God in the picture, we will never completely be plugged in to that which we were intended. Our whole focus becomes filling a void that we simply cannot fill. And there's nothing more futile than seeking fulfillment in human beings or in ourselves. Now, can we find a lot of enjoyment there? Absolutely. It can be quite distracting. Matter of fact, it distracts most people for their entire life because they will live and die without reference to God and who he is. But that life always falls short of what it could be with reference to the creator. Biblically, we understand that we live in mercy. Students of the Bible, that and that should be every true Christian, it should be a student of the Bible, they understand that the mere fact that we are drawing breath today, the mere fact that we awoke this morning, the mere fact that we were born, or our parents or our grandparents, all the way back to Adam and Eve, all those things exist because of God's mercy. For God told Adam in the garden, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. When he spoke of the forbidden fruit, go back to Genesis chapters two and three and read it again. He says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, the Hebrew translation or the the way you can translate the Hebrew, he could be saying your death will become a certainty because the day that Adam ate of the fruit, he didn't die. He went on and lived, but he died spiritually. We come to understand that later, right in the, here in the book of Romans about chapter five, Paul explains to us, look, he was dead and we're all dead and we're born dead in trespasses and sins. What that means is the fact that we have a living, breathing body, a living soul that is within it with the opportunity then to be engaged by the spirit of God and saved. That is God's great mercy because he didn't carry out the execution earlier. Now he has a right to at any moment. Your very next breath is an act of the mercy of God. See where you can start thanking him right now? The breath that you have this moment is by his great mercy. So, Ignoring those facts leads us then to idolatry, leads to futility, finally leads to what we call depravity. Depravity. Now, this is like a a junkie (laughs) that needs more and more of a drug to get the rush. Our constant seeking for fulfillment apart from God and from the material world uh, causes us to plummet into depravity. We get more and more urgent. It takes more and more to give us the fix like it with an addiction of some kind. But not only this, the further we get from the foundational truth of our existence, the more difficult it is to live in that existence. It's like continuing to play a game in which we're constantly forgetting the rules or the fundamentals required for success. We become worse and worse the harder and harder we try. It's not long going through a process like that that the mind can no longer even process thoughts in accord with reality. And we partake in what the Bible calls a debased mind. 
we become so lost in darkness that there seems to be no way to find a way out. I want you to think about this because this is where we live apart from God. We live in something that is disjointed from reality. We live in an alternative reality of our own building. And let me show you, because anytime we have something false in our worldview, it shows itself by contradictions in our lives. And here's the greatest contradiction in our life that will be ever present the week of Thanksgiving. It is this, that we have a Thanksgiving without reference to who is being thanked. This is revealed by the fact in the English language that the verb to thank is a transitive verb. In other words, it's a verb that's designed to have a direct object. You don't just walk into a room and say, I thank an incomplete sentence. It requires an object. Now, you could come into the room and you could say, I thirst. Because implicit in that word, that can be an intransitive verb. It just means you're thirsty. But we can't walk into a room and say, I thank, because everyone will look at us like, you thank what? You thank whom? The very word itself points to the fact that it requires an object. And so here's what we do. We try to deceive ourselves. We try to trick ourselves. Instead, what we'll do, instead of saying, I thank God, we say, I'm so thankful. And we use it as an adjective instead of a verb because the verb demands an object. The adjective doesn't. It just describes me. I'm thankful. That's a cop-out. If you tell people you're thankful, it's a cop-out. To whom are you thankful? Are you thankful to no one? That doesn't make any sense. Are you thankful to random chance? Well, if you think the universe is just spinning out of control without regard to God, it's just going about its business, you know, it's got certain physical laws in play and everything else, and that's it, then why do you need to express gratitude? What is it inside your human self that desires to give thanks to somebody? See, if you have ever been grateful, if you have ever been thankful, you are bearing witness against yourself that there is indeed someone responsible, someone to thank. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Thankfully, God has made himself known. He has shown who it is that we can thank. He has proven who he is by the word that he gave us, the Bible, and by the works and work of Jesus Christ. If your benefactor is simply chance, then you're left hanging. There's really no one to thank, and you really don't need this holiday, do you? You might as well just have a holiday to enshrine yourself and say, look what I have accomplished by my own hand. Well, the difficulty is this, and here's what I want you to consider. If you believe that what you have has come to you by random chance, or if you believe that you have created your own circumstances, you've got a couple problems. Number one, you dare not celebrate it if it comes from random chance, because what it means is that a good life has landed upon you. Some benefit has come to you, which suggests that benefit did not come to someone else. And so your celebration is someone else's lament.
And if you believe that you wrought these things by your own hand, that's something that you did and you're thankful, then you're thankful to yourself and you will find great emptiness down that road. You cannot be grateful to yourself. But if indeed there's someone to thank, someone responsible for the benefits you've received, now you can begin to develop an attitude of stewardship. Because even if the benefit is attributed to God and God blessed you with a thing, well, that thing didn't go to someone else. It only came to you. But if you acknowledge that it comes from God, then you acknowledge, well, I didn't really deserve this. This came from God. This is a grace of God that was given to me. It would be right and proper for me, number one, to thank him. Number two, to use what he has given me for his glory and for the benefit of others. You ever wonder why believers in Jesus Christ, by and large, give more to charity than non-believers? It's because they recognize nothing they have is their own. Everything they have has been handed to them by God for stewardship. That was our original job. That was our original position in the creation was to be stewards, to be, to be God's image ruling over creation. In other words, it's his creation. He made it. He owns it, but he entrusts it to us. And so it is with every single thing in our life if we understand how we received it. And we invest those things in the, for his glory, for the benefit of others. Well, so the question comes, okay, I see that thanks is uh, important, but sometimes I just have great difficulty being more thankful. And we all recognize we need to be more thankful. And in writing this, I had to deal with this all week and realize how ingrateful I am about the many benefits and blessings of life and all the little things and all that God has done. And in our toil, we lose sight of this. I lose sight of this where I I think I'm accomplishing things. I think I'm doing things. I think I'm going to my job and deserving of a paycheck. But all these things are blessings from him. And in So the question has come, how do I become more thankful? How do I acknowledge God even more in all these things? Well, let me give you a few things here. Number one is this, repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The number one most important step to being more thankful is to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation because that is the light Paul puts this at the beginning of his gospel presentation in the book of Romans, which begins there in chapter one and goes pretty much to the end of the book. And he says in that, and he begins in that about this thanking of God is so critical. But these things are spiritually discerned. They're only understood with the light of God. They're only understood when we have him to guide us and teach us. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to recognize, God, I have failed in thanking you and giving you honor for everything. And I believe Jesus was sent to remedy this. Because I want you to bring you back to this, the scriptures momentarily. And I want to show you something in the passage here. Notice this, that he says, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, righteousness is a key word 
in these first few chapters of the book of Romans. Righteousness is really important because righteousness means that right standing, that right legal standing before God. And righteousness is what we need in order to be in the presence of God. If we don't have sufficient righteousness to be in the presence of God, we will forever be cast out. And that is a place that we know is hell. But the problem is all our good works cannot amount to any kind of credit or righteousness to us because we have sin, sin taints it all. And even even if we perform a, a perfect work of art, so to speak, for God, of a good work, when we hold it up to him, we hold it up to him with dirty hands that have committed sin. He cannot look upon it. He cannot accept it or receive it. The Bible describes that to God as being like filthy rags. So what we need is righteousness. And there's a righteousness available, not our own. Look how he says this. He says uh, he's urgent. He's, he's eager to share the gospel with the people in Rome. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's for everyone. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, you notice when I highlighted the word faith there, the word believe gets highlighted with it. That's because in the Greek, they're the same word. They're just a distinction between a verb form and a noun form. And what he is saying here is very clearly this, that God offers salvation to those who believe. And that salvation is the righteousness of God that is revealed, and it's revealed by faith, through and through by faith. And he quotes the Old Testament here, as it is quoted also in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Galatians, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, life comes by faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ, who bore our sins upon a cross and offers to us his righteousness. That's the great argument that Paul's making in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Romans is that none of us are righteous. Not even one of us. Whether we have all the rules and we do our best to follow them or we don't, we disobey our conscience. He says not a single human being is found with sufficient righteousness for God. So Jesus Christ came and paid the price for sin and offers to us who believe his righteousness. Do you see, Jesus Christ is offering to you and reaching out to you and handing to you, here's my righteousness. Give me your sin. In other words, repent and believe that I bore the price for that sin upon the cross. You can have my righteousness to present yourself before God. And this is what Paul's explaining. And in the midst of it is all this, the revelation of our sin. Repent and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Secondly, and this is part of the, you know, the the first part really relies on this. Um, Be a student of God's word. Because like I said, it's not only commanded in the scripture, but it's modeled for us in the scripture. And as we read the scriptures, we understand two things. We understand the greatness of God, the perfect righteousness of a holy God. And on the other hand, we recognize 
our incredible sin. And as we read more and more of the scriptures, this gap becomes wider and wider until we can't even see him from where we are. The, the righteousness of God is so supreme and so incredible and so high, and the, the condition of mankind is so low that we will have to thank him and we'll have to glory in him for what he's done. Because what he has done is he has given the undeserving the opportunity to be saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly here, the way to be more thankful is this. Assess life biblically. Review the scriptures that I've included with the notes. Some of the scriptures I quoted earlier, like Psalm 50 and others, they show us indeed how to understand thankfulness, how to be thankful. And they they help us to understand how much we have to be thankful for, because if we have received any benefit whatsoever in this life, we indeed owe it to God to give him the honor and glory due for giving us that benefit. No matter how terrible your circumstances are right now, you can be thankful that there is a God who, number one, knows about it. Number two, has had worse himself as he walked here on the earth, rejected by men and crucified with all the wrath of God being laid upon him. He knows what you're going through and he sees it and he will hear your cry. You can be thankful for that, but you can also be thankful that in his offer of eternal life, it means forever with him without sin, without even the presence of sin, without even all these ill effects of sin, of the poverty and the violence and the difficulty and the strife and the anxiety and depression, all those things gone forever. And we can be thankful for that hope because even though we don't experience it now, it puts now in perspective. It shows us what what we are suffering now, no matter how incredible it might seem, no matter how bad and overwhelming it might be, how crushing it can be to our soul, it is but temporary. It is but temporary. And Jesus Christ is returning. And he says, I come quickly at a time we do not expect and the clouds will roll back and the entire world will see it all at once and every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will only be two types of people that day. Those who are confessing with their tongue and bowing their knee willingly and those who are confessing with their tongue and bowing their knees unwillingly. And it all has to do with whether or not you have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that certainly gives gives us a few things to think about this Thanksgiving. Be thankful for what God has provided you because whatever benefit you have ever received, it is handed down by him. And whatever bad thing has ever happened to you is the result of the sins of mankind. And so you can turn to God in gratitude, but also in repentance. So this Thanksgiving, just like they did in 1621 and in the midst of the Civil War and shortly after in a nation trying to rebuild and during a nation war-torn in 1942, in all those times when they said, you know what, we really need to give thanks. Maybe you'll see that right now.
maybe you'll understand right now in the midst of these great difficulties that you might be suffering, I encourage you, begin by turning to God and thanking Him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You this day and we thank You for this lesson lesson that You've given on thankfulness. Lord, I pray that each one listening to this would begin to thank You, would begin to endeavor to understand these things. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would draw them to yourself, that they might understand indeed what you have done, the price you paid for sin, and the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that all listening will consider these things and seek your scriptures. And I pray just like you called called the apostle alongside the Ethiopian considering these things in the book of Acts, Lord. I pray that you'll call alongside someone listening who is, you have pricked them in their heart about these things. They have felt convicted over being thankful. And Lord, I pray that you'll call alongside one of your people to give the gospel truth and release them from their bondage to this darkness. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can find us if you have questions or would like to give some feedback at whitesrun.org. You can learn more about our church there and what we believe. You can also email me at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. That is an email that will be answered by me and I, I will give rapid attention to it as it will come right to my phone, especially if you find yourself in despair this holiday season. Reach out we will encourage you with God's words. We are not here to condemn because we ourselves found ourselves to be condemned. And that is where the gospel came in and saved. God bless you.